0: straight into the scripture you have it on your trifold Um, if your brother sins against you go tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've won your brother over or you've won your brother if he won't listen take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses every fact may be established if he doesn't pay attention to them tell the church if he doesn't pay attention even to the church let him be like a gentile and a tax collector to you truly i tell you whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven again truly i tell you if two of you on earth agree about any matter you pray for it will be done for you by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered together in my name i am there among them matthew 18 15 to 20 this is the word of the lord let's say thanks be to god thanks be to god now, this might sound like a strange full launch message or a strange back to school message. I mean, just a chapter earlier is the account of the transfiguration of heaven literally coming to earth. That would have made a good full launch message or how about Matthew 17:20, 20 uh, having faith the size of a mustard seed again another great full launch message or even Matthew 18 verse 4 where Jesus tells us to welcome children in his name these are great texts for a back to school message and yet we're stuck with Matthew 18 15 to 20 this passage that causes us I'm looking at you and I'm looking at me, causes us so much tension because we never really live it out, right? So, thank you, Revised Common Lectionary, for this being our passage today. And yet, I think perhaps this passage is perfect for going back to school or work or whatever season we're in. And here's why because conflict is going to be on our horizon. If it's not already there, we're, we're going to be offended by people, we're going to be wronged, we're, we're going to be triggered, we're going to be hurt. And how we deal with that offense as disciples of Jesus, according to Matthew 18, is actually super important. Because if you don't deal with the offense right, it tends to follow you like a shadow for years. And uh, I cannot even begin to guess the number of friendships and families that I've seen torn apart by unresolved conflict and unacknowledged offense. You sweep the bad feelings under the carpet and sure, you know, you might trip over them every now and again, but you learn to live with them and you learn to avoid that kind of problem spot on the floor so you don't trip. Or on the other hand, if you're not a sweeper under the carpet, maybe you're a social media outrager where the slightest offense is dealt with a massive flailing of limbs and instant cancellation and preaching to the choir campaigns of hate speech and nastiness and zero grace hashtag outrage and if we're honest neither of these responses are truly satisfying when you ghost someone Who offended you that's not satisfying and when you blast them on the other hand that's not satisfying maybe it's satisfying initially but the regret quickly kicks in right neither of them work long term either ghosting someone or blasting them neither works long term so might it be that jesus the eternally wise son of god has something worthwhile hearing as we step into this new season now, to help me understand this passage, I actually broke down Matthew 18, uh, 15 to 17 into a flow chart on a piece of paper. And here it is. And what I hope is that this might help us track with what Jesus is commanding. Can people see this, this thing? Can you? Is it high enough? I know it's small, but is it high enough? I can bring it up onto the stage. Let me do that. There we go. All right, here we go. This is uh, school lesson time. This is old school. It's not one of those smart boards. This is called a piece of paper that I have uh, written on. Okay. So this is what we will be using to kind of track with the passage. So you start at the top with someone who has sinned against you. Another Christian has done something to wound you, to hurt you, to injure you. You cannot believe that they did what they did. You cannot believe they said what they said. Then this flows down into two options. There we go. This then flows down into two options, which is you can tell them alone or you don't tell them. Okay, Those really are the two options. And as we see, if you choose not to tell them, then the process stops dead. This is the end of the process. Don't tell them. That's it. You've chosen to sit on it, you've chosen to internalize it, you've chosen to absorb it, which, as any of our psychotherapists in the church would say, isn't very healthy, uh, but it is an option. And if you choose, but if you choose to tell them alone, notice this is not telling all of your friends, it's telling them alone, then uh, this flows down into two more options. Okay, they listen to you or they don't listen to you. Now, at this point, I want us to jump down to the bottom of the flowchart. Right at at the bottom of this process is this box that says, you have won your brother, or you have won your sister. You have won your brother or your sister. And why this is important is because this is the goal of the whole process, is to win your brother or your sister, to win your sibling in Christ over. The goal of Matthew 18 is not to let them have what's coming to them, It's not to try to get as many people on your side before they do so that you can beat them in the court of public opinion. It's not even to vindicate yourself. That's not your goal. The goal is to win your brother or sister. And just so so we're clear, I don't mean win against your brother and sister. It's not a competition. It's not about winning over them. It's about winning them over okay let's say that all together it's not about winning over them it's about winning them over one more time it's not about winning over them it's about winning them over okay good it's about re re-designating them in your mind from being quote-unquote the enemy to being a teammate or a family member who has hurt you and those are two very different things the enemy versus someone a family member who's hurt you so we have at the bottom of this flowchart uh, you've won your brother and, or sister that's the goal now going back up the flowchart uh, to where it says they listen to you or they don't listen to you um, if they listen to you when you approach them one on one then you get to jump all the way down the flowchart to the bottom where it says you have won your brother okay? It's like snakes and ladders, right? You get to show all the way down, result, success. And the flowchart ends. However, if they don't listen to you, then you have the next stage um, or the next level. Now, yeah, before looking at this one, we do have one caveat or one thing that I do want to say to you. It's, it's a caveat that's important to note. And here's what I want to say to you. If someone has hurt you in the sense that they have abused you physically or sexually through violence or through coercion, then do not approach them individually. Go to someone you trust, see a counselor or a therapist, make sure you're safe. If necessary, go to the police. Um, S- Scott McKnight and Laura Barringer in their book, A Church Called, called Tove, T O V Tove, a church called Tove, they explain in depth how Matthew 18, 15 to 17 uh, can be weaponized as a tool of silencing and intimidation against the vulnerable or the abused, particularly in church settings. And they actually talk about some ugly real-life examples in that book. So if you want to learn more about that and what the church should be like, then just look up the title, uh, A Church Called Tov, T-O-V. So that's our caveat, and so that caveat aside, Jesus is clear in how we are to address people who we feel have sinned against us, which is to go to them. And if they do not listen, step two is to bring witnesses. Take one or two others with you to establish facts. Verse 16... You can read it on your your handout. If you won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Take one or two others with you. Why? To establish facts. This isn't about cornering your brother in an alley and beating him up because you've got more numbers. It's not even about bringing along your cronies so that they can join you in gasping and saying, I can't believe you said that to them. I can't believe that you did that. How could you? That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to establish facts. And this harkens back to the legal system laid out in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which says this, One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, one witness isn't enough. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses witnesses Deuteronomy 19:15 okay so here's the thing right when we have a grievance against another person often we can see things only from our perspective But by referring back to this legal system from Deuteronomy, Jesus is in effect saying, could there be another side to this conflict? Could there be another angle that you are too blinded by rage or by hurt to see? So, you know, it's that verse, right? Take the log out of your eye before helping your brother remove the splinter in his eye. Hence the two or three or or the one or two witnesses, this is how you might broach the subject, okay, how would you even do this, right, this is a suggested script, Uh, you know, so you're there with your friend who's now, you you know, that they've hurt you, they've sinned against you, and you say to them, look, I know that we've not seen eye to eye, and it didn't end well when we chatted last time, but I really want to give it another go, and so I'd like to bring along one or two other people, people that we both trust to give fresh eyes to perhaps what you and I might be missing. And perhaps after hearing both sides, the two witnesses might say to you, actually, that's not sin as we understand it. Or perhaps they agree with you. Or perhaps it's a bit of both. That's usually the case, right? It's gray You're both at fault sometimes. And in this meeting, maybe what these two witnesses can do is that they can tease what's going on under the surface out. They will, they will bring some perspective that often we lose in the heat of the battle, the pain of being hurt. The number of times that I've had to go back to my family, even over this weekend when I'm so angry, I say something I shouldn't have, and then I come back to them and go, my perspective was wrong, okay? I'm sorry. Okay, so let's say after this meeting with the three people, with the person you're um, not seeing eye to eye with, these one or two witnesses, that you are exonerated, you are totally in the right, and the other person is totally in the wrong. That's what you want, right? Is for you to be totally in the right, the other person to be totally in the wrong, and the witnesses to agree. Well, if that is the case, then by dealing with this conflict respectfully, what you have just demonstrated to your opponent is wisdom and grace. And once again, At that point, the ball is in their court. They can choose to engage and apologize and make amends, in which case, you've won your brother and sister, okay? Snakes and ladders. Or they can, as verse 17 says, they do not pay attention to the group, okay? And so the flowchart continues. Next step, tell the church. So on that note, I'd like, uh, no, I'm joking. I have... (laughs) If, verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And just to keep in mind that the whole process, uh, the whole point of this process is is to win your brother or your sister. And one writer says this, okay? Jesus speaks here um, not of honest differences of opinion but of a fellow christian who quote unquote sins against you such sin would include the offenses summarized in the ten commandments but one might extrapolate it to mean any self-serving behavior that breaks the unity of fellowship in christ when church members injure one another it's not merely an individual personal offense this is important for you to hear it's not merely an individual personal offense it's a theological matter harming the body of christ each step is outlined by christ um, and is to be undertaken in the hope of healing and restoration the hope of healing and restoration and now we're telling the church but don't forget that all these previous steps have taken place in order to avoid this one right now i'd be surprised if any of us read this advice to tell the church and we're like yeah that makes sense If someone's offended me and I've gone to them personally and no joy and then I've taken along one or two others, no joy, then the next step is to slot in a bit of public naming and shaming on a Sunday morning, sandwiched it between the two worship songs, right? In fact, pastor, could you set aside a few minutes next week for me to publicly air my grievance before we sing How Great Thou Art? Would that work? Okay and then of course I stand up on stage and it's good morning church our upcoming events are youth kickoff September the 10th and the downstairs children's classrooms are open and I lent Scott Norris 100 bucks and he's refusing to pay me I've gone to him repeatedly and now I have to come to you where is Scott he was still there okay I'm, now, I'm using this example because this is the context of church as we think about, right? Sunday morning between 10 and 11, 15 a.m. But is this what Jesus is thinking? Is this what Jesus is talking about? In, in fact, as I was reading this passage the first time, the first thought I had, and I shared with Wendy, and she had the same thought, was Jesus is talking about the church. I thought the church began in Acts chapter 2. With the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Isn't that when the church began? Why is Jesus talking about the church, which is a post-Christ concept? Well, the words that Jesus used is the word ekklesia. Ecclesia. He uses it only twice. Uh, Here and in Matthew 16, you know that verse where he says, uh, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Okay, that is where Jesus talks about the ecclesia. In that same passage he says, Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And interestingly, Jesus uses the same words in this passage. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loose in heaven. So the two times Jesus talks about the ecclesia, the church, he says binding on earth, binding in heaven, loosing on earth, loosing in heaven, which is kind of interesting, right? Now, R.T. France, a writer, helps us understand this strange phrase, Ecclesia, with these words. He says this, we may perhaps envisage the community or two or more of its members praying either for the person whose sin has been brought to light or for guidance in their corporate decision as to how it should be dealt with. That's what jesus is talking about with the church and so friends whenever we gather for honest conversation to hold each other accountable in love matthew 18 tells us that god is there he's invested that heaven and earth are in agreement whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven loosed on earth is loosed in heaven this is the church right and church ecclesia means called out ones everyone say called out ones called out ones Ecclesia. This is where the phrase iglesia comes from in Spanish or église in French. Even the word in Welsh, eglois, for church comes from the Greek word Ecclesia it means assembly it means called out ones it means the people who would have met together for any reason Um explains it like this Jesus himself probably envisaged little groups or cells of his followers meeting together acting as small-scale local assemblies of God's renewed people that then would be the group that should be told about any confrontation that had remained unresolved so this means that it's probably something like your grow group or your life group if you're from another church a small group this could be the context where grievances are worked out and isn't it incredible to think that in Christ we have a safe place to work things out we don't need to internalize them stuff them down deep in our hearts we don't need to resort to outrage posts on social media we actually have our church family that we can work these things through with And so friends, really, this makes me think that I want to have more of a small group culture here at Cornerstone. I want to have more of a grow group culture here at Cornerstone. Some of our groups did really well through COVID. Uh, Others kind of uh, shut down and haven't really started up again. Some others have started up since COVID. But I suspect that there are a lot of you here now who are not part of a grow group or a small group, that you don't have that level of community where you can pray together and do life together and work things out so don't wait for the church leadership like me to organize something for you go ahead and start something yourself that is ecclesia that is the church and that's the context in which in, in which in which this part should be worked out verse 17 if he doesn't pay attention even to the church let him be like a gentile and a tax collector to you okay listen to these words churches usually hear this you know, Gentile and tax collector, as licensed to excommunicate, exile or otherwise shun the individual. That would be the common sense approach, right? To shake off the dust from one's feet, to wash one's hands of the person and to move on. However, since Jesus often interacted with Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes and other unsavory outsiders, we should think more deeply about his meaning. End quote. When we read verse 17, it sounds like three strikes and you're out. One on one, strike one. One or two witnesses, strike two. Church, strike three, you're out. You're a Gentile and a tax collector. You're done. But let's take that challenge that we just heard seriously. Let's think about how did Jesus interact with Gentiles and with tax collectors? Luke 5 uh, verse 27 tells us that Jesus called Levi the tax collector to follow him. And then Luke 18:13 shows us a tax collector who pleaded for God to have mercy on him in the temple, a sinner. So a tax collector needs God's mercy and a tax collector is called to follow Jesus. And in times of conflict, especially if we feel that we're on the right side, that we've been hurt, we have to be super careful not to end up sounding like the Pharisee in the temple in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even this tax collector. We have to be super careful we don't sound like that. Our posture, even in these conflicts, is to be humble, never self-righteous, even when we've been vindicated, or perhaps especially when we've been vindicated. We're never to look down at that person who we are now treating as a tax collector or a Gentile, because Jesus had a special place in his heart for these very people also when we look at the context of Matthew 18 15 to 20 we have no choice but to end up in a place of humility Okay, Matthew 18 verse one to ten is all about treating children right, not leading children astray. Matthew 18 twelve to fourteen is about Jesus seeking the one sheep. Matthew 18 fifteen to twenty, our passage this morning, is about winning over a brother. Matthew 18 twenty one and onwards is about the importance of forgiveness to the point of absurdity. Will. Be hearing more about that next week. So, we could sum up the whole of Matthew 18 by saying the one child matters to God, the one sheep matters to God, the one who offends you matters to God, and the one who needs forgiveness matters to God. Matthew 18, as a chapter, is all about building bridges between the person struggling and the God that they need, never burning bridges. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then that onus is on you. You are the one to not cause a child to stumble. You are the one praying for the sheep to come home. You are the one to win the brother or sister. And you are the one who forgives. And so I hope that we never stand in the way of a sinner, even someone who's wronged us, a Gentile or a tax collector, finding repentance and reconciliation with God. May we be a bridge to between them and God now of course in the eyes of the world none of this makes sense right as I've said before the world's response is to ghost them on the one hand or to blast them on the other to pretend like they don't exist or to socially execute them that's how the world handle it now as you look at the world you look at society you look at the church is this working is the ghosting and the blasting working is it leading to a happier world is it leading to a world in which you want to live are the people who hold on to silent grudges, are they happy? Are the people who drag their opponents through the public court of Twitter or X, are they happy? If they're not happy, then maybe there's, it's worth trying another way. Maybe Jesus is onto something. So as we track through this process in Matthew 18 of dealing with someone who sinned against you, we reach this place of treating them like a tax collector or a Gentile it seems to me that we need grace to pray for grace to see them as jesus would see a tax collector or a gentile to see them as someone who needs the mercy of god like the tax collector in the parable or as someone who jesus is still calling to follow him like levi the tax collector in other words we need to see them as someone who needs jesus and if by their continual refusal to engage they're actually showing that they might not be a brother or sister in Christ then perhaps our job is now to now moves to evangelism to winning them to Jesus because they need to maybe hear the gospel they they need Jesus now someone said to me and i can't remember who uh they said to me that, that when they're faced with family members who aren't christians and who don't act like Jesus when people in their family say hurtful things to them When faced with people like this, they ask themselves this question, why should we expect someone who's not a Christian to act like Jesus? Why do we have that expectation? If they're not Christ's, then let's not expect them to act like Christ. Instead, let's try to win them to Christ by treating them as a tax collector or a Gentile, which leads us back to our original goal of winning our brother. Verse 15, you've won your brother. So Jesus has outlined a pretty specific set of instructions about how to approach the situation when someone sins against you. And we've also observed that we don't see this happening a lot in the local church. And I think maybe rather than filing it under rubbish or irrelevant, maybe, maybe we should take it to heart. Wouldn't that be a crazy idea? I mean, even if we just look at step one, going to the person who sinned against us i wonder how many conflicts that would resolve how many grudges that would scrub away if you're in conflict with someone you struggle to see their humanity right you see them as the enemy they're now a caricature they're just that one thing they're the person who said that thing to you they aren't anymore you know they're the, they they are not complex anymore they're just a simple thing they are the enemy they are that one thing that they said or did and i wonder how many footholds satan has in our community that would be closed simply by going in grace and love to that person and having them a conversation having a conversation with them telling them what they did and telling them how it made you feel and how it hurt you in fact here's my invitation to you i know that as a pastor of a church our size some of you think that I've sinned against you. I I have no doubt of that at all. And if I have sinned against you, I invite you to come and talk to me about it. Because every time you see me, it's like a millstone hanging around your neck and you cannot see past that thing that I said to you. And so I, in all sincerity, invite you to set up an appointment with me. And let's practice flexing our atrophied muscles of Matthew chapter 18. Don't blurt it out to everyone. Don't sweep it under the carpet. And I promise that I will listen. And if I don't, bring along one or two other witnesses with you and have another go. Because that place where two people meet is more than just two people meeting it's actually where heaven and earth meet verse 18 truly i tell you whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven verse 18. the powers of heaven are engaged in what you are doing they're interested in you setting up that meeting so whether it's one-on-one or one, or in a group of two or three, or in the context of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the small group that you're in, also known as the church, whenever we choose to deal with sin and conflict and disagreement in a way that honors God and follows Christ's words and example, this is Jesus' promise to us. Verse 19, again, truly I tell you, okay, Jesus never lies but sometimes he says these things that is like you really have to listen to this and when he does that it's verily verily truly truly or here again truly I tell you if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for it will be done for you by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered together in my name I am there among them Remember, the goal is not to win over your brother and sister, it's to win them over. And may God grant you the courage and the compassion to have the conversations that you need to have.